You can make your way back to your seat. What a rowdy bunch this morning. If we haven't met before, my name is Brent Smith. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Central and uh, certainly glad that you've joined us this morning. And it's so good to be together as the church and worship God. And uh, we now have the great privilege of looking at God's Word together as well. And so that's what we're going to do. For the last few weeks in 2 Corinthians, we've been looking at chapter 10 and the issue of conflict resolution. And you've done well uh, with hanging with me through that. Uh, so I commend you on that. We're going to move on to chapter 11 this morning. All right. So uh, we'll trust that God used and will continue to use uh, what he spoke to us through chapter 10. But this morning we move on to chapter 11. We're going to look at the first half of 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. We'll read a big chunk, but really our main focus will be verse uh, 3. And uh, really just a phrase in verse 3. It's a phrase that I think is a focal point of the whole book of 2 Corinthians and really uh, a focal point of, of Paul's whole ministry to the Corinthians. It really captures Paul's heart and the reason he is writing the letter. And so sometimes on a Sunday morning we take big chunks of Scripture and we tackle big chunks of Scripture, but it's also good just to take some extended time to dwell on just a few words. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to get all we can out of these few words, enjoying each part and letting each word speak to us. Okay, so sometimes it's good to take a big chunk. This morning, we're just going to take one little phrase. So if you're the type of person who eats an M&M peanut by sucking off the candy coating, letting the chocolate melt and then biting into the peanut, then this morning is for you because that's what we're going to do with 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Okay? Does that sound all right? Good. We know how Angela eats her M&M peanuts. All right, so let's pray, and then we'll jump in. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 15. Father, we're so thankful for the privilege it is to gather as your church. We're thankful that we're not alone, but we have brothers and sisters who love you and you've joined us together, you've knit us together as a family, and we get to come together and we get to worship you. We get to be not just in each other's presence, but in your presence. We've gathered to you this morning and we thank you for the ways that you've been encouraging us already through your word, through uh, contributions that have been brought, through the songs that we have sung. And uh, we just say this morning that we come to your word now and it's a living an active word, and we pray that you would speak to us through it. We pray that you would come now by your Spirit, Father, and that you would use your word to change us. We don't want to leave the same people as we came in. We want to be changed in your presence. We want to be changed through the power of your Spirit, working through your word. And so we pray that you would again give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand what you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 11, in the first 15 verses. Paul says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, 
your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. I can never say that. Achaia. Achaia. Achaia? I don't know. Sorry, I got hung up on it. And why? Exactly. And why? Because I do not love you, God knows I do. And what I do, I will, not continu- I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. All right, so as we've seen over the last few weeks, Paul has been dealing with this conflict, this rift between him and a group of rebellious Corinthians. They've wandered off from his teaching. Uh, they've been bad-mouthing him. They've been spreading rumors, bringing some pretty heavy accusations against him. Uh, he references the other group that's been kind of leading them astray. He calls them the super apostles. He's just a regular old apostle, but these guys, they're the super apostles, and you're being led astray by them. And that's part of the reason Paul is writing 2 Corinthians, is that he wants to address this particular issue. And so we get to chapter 11, and Paul continues to show uh, the Corinthians his great heart for them. We've seen it all the way through, but, but here may be the place where Paul really boils it down and so just give it to us straight paul what do you uh, want from us what do you uh, what's your desire for the for us what are you concerned about and paul says he says look guys i feel like a dad who has given his beautiful daughter away to be married married to a good husband one who will care for her protect her provide for her be faithful to her but my fear is that the garden of eden scene will be played out again. And my fear is that that old snake will deceive you as he did Eve, and you will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, your husband. My fear is deception. My heart is devotion. Sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so it's like Paul's whole ministry can be boiled down to that one phrase this is what i'm striving for this is what i'm working long hours for this is what i'm enduring hardship and suffering for this is what i'm making tents so i'm not getting money from you for this is what it's all focused on everything else is just periphery everything else 
is just on the side. The core of it all is to see you living with a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And when I feel you being led away from that, there is this righteous anger, this divine jealousy that rises up in me for you. And so Paul has this father of the bride love for the Corinthians. And I have three daughters, and by God's grace, I may be in that position someday, father of the bride. And uh, my oldest is turning 10 in a couple of months, so it feels like a long ways away, and it feels like next week, (laughs) all at the same time. But there will probably be a day when I'll be sitting in the front row, looking up at my daughter as she joins hands with this man and taking her hand and saying vows to each other and even just picturing it now in my head, I feel a bit of that divine jealousy, I think, rising (laughs) up in my heart. Who is sufficient for such a task? (laughs) And i got to go through it three times. (laughs) Leo, I might be at your door sometime in the next bit. How do we do it? But I feel that deep, jealous love for my daughter. Paul feels that love for the church. Paul feels that love for those he has led to Christ, discipled in Christ. Paul feels that deep, jealous love for the Corinthians. And in a world where we live so isolated and we protect ourselves against getting too involved in others' lives, we love and measure so that we can control how much we get hurt. Isn't it refreshing to see someone give of themselves to a length and a depth uh, to such a way that when he sees those he loves being deceived by Satan, it affects him. It gets his blood boiling. He has a father of the bride love for them. And so once again, as it's hit me all through this book, I think we should just pause and reflect on Paul's love for others. Reflect for a minute on Paul's love for others and let it speak to our own reservations, our own apathy. Let it warm up these hearts that get so cold and get so focused just on ourselves. Paul has a father of the bride love for the Corinthians. And so what relationships have we given ourselves in a way that we could say we have a father of the bride love for them? Who do we have this type of divine jealousy for. That's learning from Paul and putting ourselves in his position, but what about putting ourselves in the position of the Corinthians? Paul says his fear for them is that they, like Eve in the garden, are being deceived and led astray by Satan. And like we mentioned last time, whether it's conflict, temptation, division, we need to be aware that we have an enemy. We need to be aware that we have an enemy, that Satan has been replaying that garden scene over and over and over again. And so how aware are we this morning of Satan's tactics against us? We can't ignore it. We have to be alert. We have to be on guard. Paul says that he deceived Eve with his cunning, with his cunning. Later in the chapter, we read that 
Satan even masquerades himself as an angel of light. And so Satan doesn't come with a big flashing arrow that says, destruction, destruction, destruction. And you're like, oh, destruction. Oh, Paul says he's cunning and that he masquerades as an angel of light. Temptation and sin can be a bit like a spiral staircase that blinds us to how far we've gone down. Just another step, another step, another step, another step. Did God really say? Is that what Jesus is really like? Is that really the gospel? And we just take steps and steps and steps until we finally look up and realize that we're a long ways away from where we once were. Notice the battleground as well for this warfare is where? It's in the mind. It's in the mind. Paul says, your thoughts will be led astray. So sin begins in your mind. That's why Paul said in the last chapter that we are to take every thought captive, make it obedient to Christ. You don't just cheat on your taxes without first having the thought, you deserve more. You've worked hard. Who will notice anyway? You're being led astray in your thoughts. And so there's a lot more that the Bible says about that, but for this morning, just think about what Paul says here. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. Your thoughts will be led astray. Paul wants the Corinthians, he wants us to be aware that we have a cunning foe who wants to deceive us and eventually destroy us. I met with a guy once and he told me he didn't like to think of the Christian life in terms of a soldier in a battle, but preferred more to think of it as a servant in a vineyard. And I said, well, that's fine to think of it in those terms, but you need to realize that as you're you're picking grapes, there are fiery arrows flying by your head and there's a lion roaming the rows of the vineyard looking to rip you to shreds. And so I would suggest you get a helmet on your head and a sword in your hand or you're not going to be picking grapes for very long. Was that too intense? No one's going to want to meet with me now. But we can't ignore it. We have a foe. We have a cunning enemy. We don't obsess about it. We certainly don't allow it to paralyze us with fear, but we can't ignore it either. We have an enemy. Satan's garden deception is still playing out today, and it's a primarily a battle in our mind. And what is it that Satan is so intent on leading us away from? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so for the rest of this morning, I'd like us to focus on this phrase because I believe it it tackles head-on three of the biggest strongholds we face in our culture when it comes to following Jesus. Three things that I believe lurk in all of our hearts this morning. And so we'll just go word by word through that phrase, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. 
First notice, Paul says that he wants us to have sincerity in our relationship with Christ. Sincerity means that we are free from deceit, free from hypocrisy or duplicity. We don't put on a show. There is no pretending. In the age we live in where we're knee-deep every day in perfect photoshopped media and filters on our photos and finely crafted bloggers' lives, we are perhaps more insincere than ever before. Authentic and organic and being real are common words that are thrown around, but we're probably further from them than we've ever been. A recent study of nearly 25,000 people done last year found today's youth are more perfectionist than ever in their desire for flawlessness. This pursuit of perfection is leading to higher rates of neurosis and an increase in self-loathing among teens. Perfectionism was shown to be linked in the research to anxiety, stress, depression, eating disorders, and suicide. And the study also found that as perfectionists grow older, they unravel. Their personalities become neurotic, more prone to negative emotions like guilt, envy, and anxiety, and less conscientious, less organized, efficient, reliable, and disciplined. And last month, renowned British photographer Rankin did a series he called Selfie Harm. And in the series, he photographed teenagers and then he handed them their own images to edit and filter until they felt that their picture was social media ready. And so we have a few of those pictures. So there's the first one. So he took the picture on my right, your left, and then he gave the picture to the young girl for her to get it social media ready. And you can show the next one. And Rankin wrote, people are mimicking their idols, making their eyes bigger, their nose smaller, their skin brighter, and all for social media likes. It's time to acknowledge the damaging effects that social media has on people's self-image. What's interesting is that Rankin also notes that the majority of the people he photographed preferred their original photo to their edited one. But ultimately, it's that hunger for likes, that drive to keep up with everyone else, to present well, that wins out in the end. They prefer the original, but they would post the edited one. This isn't just a millennial issue, and it's not isolated to Instagram. Our culture and media might feed it, but this beast has been living in our hearts since the Garden of Eden. Lurking in our hearts, we have this desire to present well, to hide flaws, to cover up weaknesses, so that everyone can look at us and say, perfection. But so often the outward appearance and the inward experience are far apart. And so when it comes to our walk with God, we all have this desire to put the mask on, add a filter, airbrush this, and touch up this, and present well. And just like the girls in Rankin's photos, deep down we know that we'd be happier just being honest. I think deep down we know we'd have a freedom in people knowing our weaknesses 
and bearing our burdens with us, but ultimately the desire to be praised by others is what wins out. According to folk history, the English word sincere comes from two Latin words, sin without and Sarah wax. And so in the ancient world, dishonest merchants would use wax to hide defects such as cracks in their pottery so that they could sell their merchandise at a higher price. And a more reputable merchant would hang a sign over his pottery saying, Sin Sarah without wax to inform customers that his merchandise was genuine. In Ephesians 6.5, Paul tells servants to obey their masters with a sincere heart, saying, just as you would serve Christ. So for Paul, it's a given that sincerity should mark our relationship with Christ. Our walk with God should be without wax. There's no need to try to sell a better version of ourselves than is real. And so Jesus is calling us to sincerity this morning, a lining up of outward appearance with inward experience. And it's not just to wear it as some badge or a label, and it doesn't mean we don't desire change. It just means we are sincere. We are real. Most of us this morning probably aren't living full-on double lives, but we all feel the temptation to rub wax over our lives. This week at Life Group, you'll feel the temptation to rub wax over how you say your week was. This afternoon, when you go to post something, you'll feel the temptation to rub wax over that post. And even after the message, if you come up for prayer, you'll feel the temptation to rub wax over the reason that you came up for prayer. That's how deeply entrenched it is in our heart. Jesus is calling us to a life of sincerity. And Paul's saying, don't be led astray from that sincere devotion to Christ. Next, Paul says that his desire is for the Corinthians to have a purity about their relationship to Christ. Sincerity and purity. To our sincerity, the enemy says, you're not enough, you need to look better. And to our purity, the enemy says, Jesus isn't enough, you need to look elsewhere. To our sincerity, the enemy says, you're not enough, you need to look better. To our purity, the enemy says, Jesus is enough, you better look elsewhere. If sincerity speaks to our culture's obsession with appearances, then purity speaks to our culture's addictions to options. Paul says he wants us to have purity in our relationship with God. Soren Kierkegaard wrote a book called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. The heart wills one thing. It's pure. Like Tropicana orange juice is 100% pure. It contains one thing, the juice from an orange. 
so our hearts are pure when they will one thing, namely the glory of God. There is a single focus to our lives. You can see this idea of purity in James 4.8 where he says, Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So who needs to purify their hearts? Those with a double mind. The double-minded. Those that will two things, not just one thing. Those who have hearts divided between God and the things of the world. In Matthew 22:37, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Not with part of your heart, not with a double or a divided heart, because that would be impurity. He calls us to a sincere and pure devotion to himself. We live in a world of so many options. So much so that studies are being done now on the negative effect of having so many options available to us. Last year in 2018, Netflix offered 5,578 movies and shows for you to watch. It wasn't that long ago when if you didn't want to watch Live at 5 at 5 o'clock, I got their picture for us, <laughs> you didn't watch anything. If you didn't want to watch Paul Menier's Plays of the Week on Friday, you didn't watch anything. Anyone else? Yes? There you go, Ben. Ben's with me. It was the best way to start your weekend. You got home from school, Paul Menier's Plays of the Week. Whew. It was good times. Now you're just all Googling on the googly machine and just finding whatever you want. But whether it's TVs, news, schools, after-school activities, clubs, vehicles, trips, jobs, fitness, we're drowning in an ocean of options available to us. And that leads us to developing more and more and more of a consumerist mentality, thinking, what works best for me? What's in it for me? And so we bring that way of thinking into our spiritual lives and Jesus just becomes one of the thousands of shows available for us to take in. And maybe we even binge watch Jesus for a while. But then suddenly, oh, what's this on my recommended list? Maybe I should take a bit of that in. And oh, what's this new thing on the popular list? If a lot of people are doing it, then I should probably look into that as well too, right? And our heart becomes divided. We become the double-minded that James talks about. And so in this world of so many options and our hearts saying, just find what's best for you, we might trust Jesus, but we also put our trust in a bunch of other things so that the gospel doesn't really become the gospel anymore. Angela spoke about this last week during worship when she shared about Jesus having the key to our freedom. But so often we turn to other things. And what did we say? We said, in our sincerity, Satan's lie is, you're not enough, make yourself look better. And in our purity, his lie is, Jesus is not enough, you better look elsewhere. He doesn't have the key for your freedom. You better go find that key somewhere else. And so in our 
anxiety, in our despair, in our fears. We look to things of the world. We look to Reiki and yoga and meditation or we turn to materialism and put our hope in the next dollar and the next dollar and the next dollar and the next dollar. A study done last year by the Pew Research Center found that those who identify as Christians and attend services almost every week, pray nearly every day, and regularly participate in church groups, believe in God as described in the Bible, and believe in heaven and hell, of that group, okay, of that group, one in three persons also believe in psychics and that spiritual energy can be located in physical objects, and about one in five believes in reincarnation and astrology. Paul wants the Corinthians not to believe in a different Jesus, not to receive a different spirit, and not to accept a different gospel. And we need to stop making our decisions based on the question of what's wrong with it, and start making our decisions based on the question of, does it help me have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? What's wrong with it is too easy of a question. The stakes are too high to just ask what's wrong with it. Our enemy is too cunning to just ask what's wrong with it. We need to start asking, does it help me have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ? Lastly, look at what word Paul uses for what our relationship with Jesus should be. He uses the word devotion. Devotion. A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. If sincerity speaks to our culture's obsessions with appearances and purity to our culture's addiction to options, then devotion speaks to our culture's fear of commitment. For those of us who grew up in the church, devotion was something you were supposed to do for a few minutes every morning. It wasn't something you had, it was something you did. You did your devotions, which generally meant you read your Bible and prayed half asleep. But to be devoted means to have a profound dedication and earnest attachment to. It's commitment with feelings attached to it. It's love and loyalty combined together. We are devoted. It's a not, not an activity that we do as part of our life. It's what our life is. We're devoted. In 1 Kings 18, we read about the final showdown between the God of Israel and the false God called Baal. And the prophet Elijah calls God's people to choose once and for all between the two, between the living God who delivered them and this false God who has captured their affections. And in verse 21, Elijah says to the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. 
And it says that the people did not answer him a word. So they seem unable or unwilling to make a choice. They want to hedge their bets, sit on the fence, keep their options open. Let's see how this plays out. And we're not that different today. We might agree to do something, but not too firmly, just in case something better might show up. In 2015, Facebook changed its event attending options from maybe to interested. Now, instead of saying you might be going to an event, you could just say that the event interested you. And here's an event that showed up on my Facebook feed this week. Uh, no offense to anybody, but it made me question Facebook's algorithms they use. <laughs> of those four words, I like three of them in that title. But anyway, no offense to anybody. No. But when they made the change from maybe to interested, one journalist wrote that Facebook had opened the floodgates for uncommitted event attending. Even though maybe and interested mean essentially the same thing, interested alleviates the subtle commitment of maybe. <laughs> interested alleviates the subtle commitment of maybe. And so even maybe carries a bit too much commitment. But compare this and the Israelites of 1 Kings 18 with the early church in Acts 2, or Acts 2.42 says, and they devoted themselves, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. About this verse, Ray Ortland wrote, When the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new, immovable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer, soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in in their very lives, they devoted themselves, unmistakable evidence that the Holy Spirit was being poured out. So often we treat our relationship with God like a faucet that we just turn on and off as it suits us. But Jesus is calling us to something greater. He's calling us to something more costly, something that redefines our life, reshapes our priorities, something where we push all our chips in the middle of the table. And we say, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire beside you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. No turning back. I'm devoted. I'm devoted. That's what Jesus is calling us to. A sincere and pure devotion to Himself. 
Now, it could be easy to just sit back and look at the Corinthians and we see the state that they're in, how they've been deceived, how they've been led astray from Paul, and ask, how could they? But instead, as we get near the end, we should be asking, where have I? Where have I been insincere and wore my mask to present well? Where have I mixed Jesus with the world's ideas and values and philosophies? Where have I treated Jesus as something I can just turn on and off as it suits me? And so we shouldn't roll our eyes at the Corinthians or anyone else unless we're rolling them all the way back to look at our own hearts. Because we see it, don't we? We do see our insincerity and we do see our impurity. We do see our disloyalty. And so what do we do? It just seems to be woven into who we are. How can we be free from it? How can we live with this sincere and pure devotion to Christ? How can we do it? And the key, the key is knowing that Christ's sincere and pure devotion to you is far stronger than yours to Him. The key is knowing that Christ's pure and sincere devotion to you is far stronger than yours to Him. When we were at our worst, He bound Himself to us in love. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still insincere, while we were still impure, while we were, we were still uncommitted, Christ died for us. At the cross, the love of God is on full display and it moves us to increasing sincere and pure devotion. It's when we see that, that's what moves us to sincere and pure devotion to Christ. God never puts on a show. There's no duplicity in Him. He is a God of sincerity, a God of purity. I want to read you a verse from Hosea 11. In Hosea 11, God says this. And you see all the insincerity in your heart and all the impurity in your heart. You see all your disloyalty. God says in Hosea 11, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. And they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. My people are bent on turning away from me. 
And though they call out to the Most High God, He shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I take you, make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am a God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God gives us that beautiful picture of a child that He loves, that He raises, that He feeds. He has cords of kindness and bands of love, and yet they continually turn away. They continually turn to other gods. And He says, how can I give you up? How can I turn my back on you? He says that his heart recoils within him and his compassion grows warm and tender. And he says, I'm God and not a man. And so we need to see the sincere and pure devotion of Christ for us this morning. Maybe this morning you know you've just been playing the part and you've been wearing the mask and your life feels airbrushed and edited to get more likes and the outward appearance doesn't match the inward experience and that mask is getting heavy. That mask is getting heavy. Maybe you're here this morning and you know that there is impurity in your walk with God. There's been a mixing. Somewhere along the way you've began to doubt that Jesus has the key to your freedom. You've started trying other keys. This morning I want to ask you, do those things love you with the sincere and pure devotion? Those things that you've been turning to, do they have a sincere and pure devotion to you like Jesus does? And I just feel to say, does that book that your friend gave you that comes with such a promise of freedom and fulfilling does it have a sincere and pure devotion to you like Jesus does maybe lately you've been wavering more like the Israelites on the mountain with Elijah than the devoted disciples of the early church in Acts and really, I think it's all of us, isn't it? I know it's me. And so my prayer for myself and for us is for a fresh sense of God's love. We love because He first loved us. In the study, I mentioned at the very first that looked at over 25,000 people and gathered data on the pressures of media and the rise of perfectionism and the explosion of anxiety and depression and stress in our culture. The study was done by psychologists at two secular universities, but they ended their study saying this, unconditional love 
where children are valued for more than their performance, rank, or appearance, seems as good an antidote as any. And so in our weakness, and in our failure, and in our anxiety, and in our fear, and in our suffering, and our struggle, we don't need a new technique, we don't need a new philosophy, we don't need another dollar or another like, we need a person, a person whose love for us is not based on our performance, or our rank, or our appearance, a person who loves us with a sincere and pure devotion, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need to see this morning God's great love for us. He loved us and gave himself up for us while we were still sinners in our insincerity, in our impurity, in our disloyalty. He loved us and he gave himself up for us. And if that doesn't move us then to sincere and pure devotion to Him, to say, I'm done with a mask, I'm done with all of that. Jesus has covered my sin. My weaknesses just make Him more glorified. I'm done with all the, the mixing. I'm done with that. And I'm putting my trust in Jesus alone. Because if he can save me for all eternity, then he can save me from this anxiety. And he can save me from this pit that I'm in. If he's taken away the penalty of sin from my life, then he can take away the power that that sin has over me. And I'm going to devote myself to him. Why don't we pray together? Mark can come up. Why don't we stand?